Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's been hot this week. So is it a big deal if you don't wear a mask when you're fully vaccinated against COVID? Well, a form of coronavirus known as the Delta variant is causing cases to go up in the U.S. and abroad. The CDC says it's in nearly every state and makes up more than a quarter of new cases. The World Health Organization, the WHO, recommends mask wearing whether you're vaccinated or not. What will this mean for summer when so many of us want the pandemic in our rearview mirror? Today, where we live, we'll talk about this with public health experts and take your questions to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. Later, we get an update on the COVID vaccine rate in Connecticut communities where vaccinations have plateaued. And later, does a free concert ticket or a free drink really encourage people to get the COVID shot? Again, you can join us. Now, my first guest on Zoom is Dr. Saad Omer. He's director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Saad, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Now, let's talk about this Delta variant. More and more of us are seeing it and hearing about it in the news. I understand it's responsible for one in five COVID infections in the U.S. right now and that it's fast moving. Why is that? Uh, Well, this variant uh, was initially identified in India uh, and was uh, part of the reason why there was such uh, such a rapid increase in their cases. It has been identified in, in many parts of the world, uh, you know, specifically uh, in the UK, where they have really good su- genomic surveillance. It has been identified as a major cause uh, of uh, infections uh, at this point, m- mostly in unvaccinated individuals. Uh, and so the, one of the reasons we are concerned about this variant is that it seems to spread more efficiently almost twice as efficiently as the original virus that was initially identified uh, in Wuhan and and spread through the world. Um, And so it is one of the most um, uh, infectious variants of concern uh, that we have. So uh, that's the concern. The the good thing is uh, we don't know yet, and it's not certain yet that it does cause more severe disease uh, than the regular variant. But, you know, if more people are getting infected, uh, if you're unvaccinated, then then it, it, that in and of itself uh, is, is, is of concern. Now, you had said that the Delta variant is mostly impacting unvaccinated people, but there have been stories coming out of places like Israel, which is one of the most uh, vaccinated uh, countries against uh, COVID, that there have been cases of people who are fully vaccinated and still getting Delta sod. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the vaccines are highly effective, but they're not 100% effective. So we know about this phenomenon, and we have been talking about this phenomenon of breakthrough cases. Because even if you have a vaccine that is 95% effective, um, you know there will be some cases uh, amongst those who are actually vaccinated, and, and so that's 
part of what the what we are seeing. The other thing is that if most of your population is vaccinated, and even as, if a small proportion of them uh, are um, getting these breakthrough breakthrough infection, uh, the proportion of cases in vaccinated versus unvaccinated would seem to be higher, uh, you know, at first look, or, or, or high, relatively high at, at first look, amongst the vaccinated population because there are way more of them. Uh, one, the key to do, do you know, to, to measuring and following uh, various variants is to look at what proportion of unvaccinated people versus vaccinated people uh, are getting uh, these infections. And we know, even from Israel, that. Uh, in terms of uh, what proportion of um, va- unvaccinated people are who are getting uh, you know this infection, uh, it is way higher than the proportion of people who are vaccinated and getting this infection. So it's a little bit of a sort of a you know going back to the SAT math, um, <laughs> but 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 essentially uh, we do expect some of the, some people amongst a, a highly vaccinated population to get this infection. But but we are seeing more a higher proportion of uh, unvaccinated, much higher proportion of unvaccinated, getting this infection. The other thing to remember is that uh, we know that vac- the current vaccines, especially the ones that are being used in the U.S., for example, the mRNA vaccines, which is the bulk of our vaccine uh, of the vaccines that were distributed in this country, are remain effective against this variant, especially against severe illness. So in Israel, what you're seeing is since they prioritize correctly the highest risk population to get the vaccines first and uh, achieve the higher higher coverage than average uh, in those populations, even with these cases, even this, uh, you know, a bit of an uptick in uh, cases due to the Delta variant, you are seeing this decoupling between hospitalization and deaths and the number of cases. So there hasn't been that uh, much of a corresponding rise in hospitalizations and deaths, uh, even with the Delta variant, even in Israel. Well, that's good to hear, uh, Saad. What about uh, in terms of this Delta variant and children? Uh, We know here in our country that, uh, you know, they're still doing trials on the vaccines for children 11 and under. And so, you know, what does how's the Delta variant impacting children in other countries? What have we seen? So we are seeing that, uh, you know, the cases that are occurring in unvaccinated people include children. And so that's, you know, part of the concern. Um, and so it is a good news and concerning news story that those who are vaccinated are protected. But on the other hand, those who are not vaccinated, we are seeing a rise in cases. And and that doesn't mean that, you know, we should stop activities um, that children should engage in. And, and I'd be happy to come back to what, you know, what steps we can take. But it does, uh, it is part of the concern. Uh, when it comes to children, because it is spreading in children where, uh, you know, because they're unvaccinated. We're talking about the Delta variant uh, right now. This is responsible for more than a quarter of new cases here in our country. Uh, it is definitely a, a variant that seems to be 
uh, transmissible uh, more so uh, than other uh, mutations of this virus. And if you have questions about it, there's a lot in the news lately about the Delta variant. But you can ask uh, Dr. Saad Omer, director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Andy's calling in from Woodbridge. Andy, what's your question? Yeah, um, my question has to do with um, why there aren't more available treatments being uh, offered to people. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, experience from, from very uh, notable doctors around the world using ivermectin and, and many other um, currently available drugs for, uh, that, that have been used to successfully treat and also used prophylactically to prevent the, the virus. And all the focus that we hear about is on vaccine and not about treatment. Mostly, usually doctors want to treat disease. Um, so why aren't, isn't there more being done to actively treat people who are sick uh, to be able to control the virus? So do you have an answer for Andy or some comments? Sure. Uh, so uh, first of all, I think uh, treatments should be part of uh, a research portfolio, uh, a tool set to combat this virus. Unfortunately, there is a lot of um, unsubstantiated information out there. And one impression that is created that, you know, drugs like arvomectin have been shown. So this is the drug uh, that is used for river blindness, that is used, uh, has been used for even longer in um, you know, river blindness in Africa. So ivermectin, I mean, you know, one of the examples that was mentioned, uh, it is used for, uh, you know, in the veterinary population, uh, et cetera. And so, so when uh, this outbreak uh, came around, there was an initial exploration of it as um, the, uh, you know, in terms of uh, its utility for treating or even preventing this infection. Unfortunately, in systematic studies, uh, you know, study after study, uh, you know, infection, uh, you know, you know, uh, synthesis after synthesis of evidence, it has shown, and that's uh, the consensus of the field, not of individual folks, um, or even with an MD after their name, but uh, there has been a, a systematic look at the state of evidence around uh, ivermectin, for example, and it hasn't shown to work. That's the fact. Uh, and the reason why often, you know, these kinds of things spread is a lot of people who were not infectious disease as experts got engaged with the work of infectious diseases you know, after March 15, 2020, because, you know, it was a major global problem. And so, and with access to social media, and sometimes in old, uh, old school media, um, they have been fairly productive. And, and paradoxically, those of us who actually do primary research on this pandemic have less time uh, to write Twitter threads or blog posts um, around these unsubstantiated therapy than those uh, who don't do that for a living. Uh, or, you know, for example, have their own sort of clinical practices as, as individuals or people even without MD degrees who, you know, have been interested in um, in finding solutions for this pandemic and initially saw a lot of activity around this. Uh, and, and, and therefore, a lot of these things have taken hold. So unfortunately for ivermectin, uh, it hasn't shown promise in systematic studies. 
Um, and, and it hasn't, and I'm not talking about individual studies, I'm talking about synthesis of evidence. When you carefully look at the quality of studies, are there any epidemiological biases in these studies? And look at what some studies have shown uh, overall. Um, so, so the preponderance of evidence actually pretty su substantially suggests that uh, ivermectin is not promising. Switching to other treatments, uh, there have been promising treatments like dexamethasone that has been shown in systematic trials and has uh, uh, helped pretty substantially in ameliorating the impact of this virus um, in, in several patients. Treatment overall for this uh, virus has improved, uh, but it's still not there where it becomes uh, just a nuisance in the clinic or in a hospital. Uh, so, so the best tool so far is prevention and, and 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 the best prevention tool we have is vaccination thank you Saad, uh, for uh, your comments and andy if you can still hear us the other day where we live uh, spoke to uh, researchers in our state who are uh, doing research on repurposing drugs and are doing treatments for people that have uh, long COVID or are considered long haulers. And so I, I would encourage you to listen to that show. We'll tweet it out at where we live. Uh, Saad, I wanted to go back to something I said earlier in the show about uh, wearing masks because we're, the public's getting conflicting information, right? The CDC had said you don't need to wear a mask if you're fully vaccinated indoors or outdoors. The WHO is reiterating, reiterating that people should continue to wear masks. So which is it? What what should people be thinking about when we're hearing about the Delta variant moving around in our country? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, so I'll clarify a few things. Uh, WHO recommendations are for the whole world and covers places where the vaccination rate is much, much lower than ours and uh, covers places where vaccines that are somewhat less effective, still very useful, but somewhat less effective than the mRNA vaccines or the JNJ vaccine we are using um, are being deployed in those countries. So, so they have to make recommendations for the whole world. And, and the good thing about the mRNA vaccines is, uh, especially, obviously, you know, JNJ hasn't been used enough, so we have less data. But with uh, mRNA vaccines, we have data not just of uh, the vaccines preventing infections in individuals, but also reducing the likelihood of transmission. We didn't have those data starting in December, now we have those data. Um, like we have had the, 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 you know, the, these data since March actually. So when it comes to CDC, unfortunately when they switched their guidance in March a little bit um, abruptly, uh, they managed to do some things too early and too late in the, in the same set of recommendations. So here's what uh, the evidence suggests. I think based on the evidence that has been there actually um, the, the CDC is switched, I said March, but they switched mm -hmm. the guidance in May. Um, but here's what the evidence has been pointing to. First of all, I think it's very reasonable, appropriate, and warranted to emphasize that vaccinated people have low risk of COVID-19 disease and transmission. Uh, and so, so we should say that clearly. Uh, so therefore, uh, groups such as family and friends, where it can be determined, with reasonably high level of uh, certainty who's vaccinated, can and should have indoor gatherings uh, where only unvaccinated individuals are, are masked, uh, wear masks. So, so only, you know, 
folks who are haven't received vaccines for one reason or another wear masks. Vaccinated people don't need to wear masks even indoor, indoors, where you know, um, you know who's vaccinated and who's not. In situations uh, where you know, such as supermarket customers, public transport uh, transportations, where it can't be determined with a reasonable level of certainty um, who's vaccinated um, and who's not. I think it's more prudent to for everyone to wear a mask. And, 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 and the reason for that is, look, even those who are unvaccinated, we care about their well-being as well. We all get affected by increase in hospitalization rates and, and deaths, et cetera. So, so that's the main reason. The fourth thing we should do, and I think that should be part of public health messaging, that outdoors, you most people, including unvaccinated individuals, do not need masks unless it's a really, really crowded situation. And an example of a, a crowded situation is not like four or five people eating together outdoors, is essentially an outdoor concert uh, where you know it's jam-packed, uh, et cetera. So, so that's the more um, sort of nuanced way of looking at it. And the bottom line is that uh, vaccinated people do not need masks uh, indoors or outdoors. Uh, groups could uh, impose these recommendations where you don't have a high level of certainty uh, on, on, on who's vaccinated and who's not. Thank you for that explanation. Uh, one more question for you, Saad. People have been wondering if a booster shot will be necessary for people as we continue through this pandemic and unfortunately parts of our country still low vaccination rates. So this virus keeps moving and potentially mutating. So what would you say about the um, the the reality of a booster for many Americans down the road? So we don't know yet whether we will have a booster shot and because that's the state of recommendations, that's the state of evidence. But the evidence is building up in two directions and and I'll summarize that. So there's really good news in terms of the host side of things. So you may need a booster because your immune response is declining or you may need a booster because uh, the there's a newer version of the virus circulating. So there are two reasons. On the host side, there has been really, really good news uh, from, uh, you know, immunological evidence, field evidence so far. Obviously, you look at real life effectiveness as the time passes more directly. But the epidemiolo- uh, the immunological indicators, uh, looking at the, the, the type of immune response these vaccines induce and how for how long and how robustly uh, your um body keeps on fine-tuning that immune response, the indications are are that uh, the that you produce after vaccination will be fairly long-lasting, at least a few years. And so that's good news. On the other hand, there's concerning news about newer variants. Uh, so, you know, all the newer variants of concern, including the Delta variants, seem to be okay in terms of our vaccine uh, vaccine responses, our uh, vaccine's ability to counter them, uh, especially the ones that we are using in the U.S. But the concern is that there may come a variant where this there is a chink in our armor. So right now it's okay, but, you know, we are concerned about future variants. Uh, so how do we deal with that emerging problem? Well, the reason 
uh, a lot of us are talking about global vaccine equity and distribution is twofold. First is that that's the right thing to do. But also it's in our self-interest to make sure that uh, this outbreak, this pandemic does not continue to run rampant throughout the world, providing more opportunities for newer viral variants to emerge and decreasing the probability that one of those variants or more of those variants will, uh, you know, put that chink in our armor of uh, vaccine protection. And uh, and so, so, so therefore, you know, I often say, you know, in this country uh, and, and being able to uh, access vaccines is a privilege. And the only way we can be worthy of that privilege as citizens, as residents, uh, is to pay it forward. And one way of paying it forward, <coughs> excuse me, is to advocate for vaccination in our own communities, but also uh, globally, uh, making sure that our politicians know that, uh, you know, Americans prioritize not just their own vaccination, but controlling this outbreak everywhere. Saad Omar, thank you for your expertise on uh, this subject. We always appreciate hearing from you. He's director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Thanks, Saad. My pleasure. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there are areas of Connecticut that haven't gotten the COVID vaccine. We're going to talk more about that after the break. And you can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. We know that Connecticut Mirror reported that vaccination rates tracked very closely to the socioeconomic situation of the communities. And Connecticut cities have consistently lagged behind suburban communities and vaccine uptake over the course of the rollout. So what needs to happen to change this? We wanted to check back in with Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett, who was a member of the state's vaccine allocation committee. She's executive director of Health Equity Solutions. Takesha, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, we know that I think it's six in 10 residents that are fully vaccinated, but when you look at the data and you see uh, the differences uh, depending on if someone's white, black, or Hispanic, what's your reaction to this and, and, and why is this still happening? 
Yeah, so I think it's really great that we've gotten so far with at least getting some one dose into individuals, but also having uh, six and 10 people fully vaccinated. But it's always been my question, and it remains, you have to look a little bit deeper. Numbers on aggregate mask the fact that there are many people, many communities who have not actually had that that much penetration of the vaccine. And I think it's interesting that we're still on the other side of our testing, hospitalization, and deaths side of this, where we saw disproportionate numbers of people of color um, suffering from COVID-19. And now we're on the other side of the vaccine, and we're still seeing that same trend. Uh, When we talk about the data, so about 61% of white residents have gotten at least one dose in our state. Compare that with 46% of Hispanic residents and 39% of black residents. That's according to the latest Department of Public Health data. So let's uh, talk a little bit more about some of the barriers that still exist uh, for people who haven't been able to get the shot, Takesha. I think there are kind of, I would say, two different types of barriers. There's the the one side of it that deals with access, and access could mean not understanding when and where or how to access the vaccine. Uh, there could also be the challenges of transportation if you need to travel to get the vaccine. But I think another part of this that is really significant is not having the ability availability of time um, and time is a barrier. And what I mean by that is a lot of people do not have employment opportunities that allow them to take off to get the vaccine and or to deal with the downtime that might be a result of the vaccine. Personally, I can attest and I think many people have heard it, you have different reactions. Each person may react to the first dose. Some people may react to the second. Personally, I was probably out of commission for about a day, nothing mm-hmm. too harmful or uh, too terrible, but it did. I did have to take the day off after my second dose. And that's not a privilege that everyone is afforded. But in the other side of that is a barrier. I think there's a significant barrier that we've always known has been there, and that's a lack of trust in the healthcare and government systems. So when you put all of this together, we're not putting up the, uh, people don't have enough knowledge or understanding of how to access the vaccine with the, with paired with hesitancy. And I think there's hesitancy regardless of whether you're a person of color or not, but regardless, uh, lack of hesitant, uh, sorry, lack of confidence that is resulting in hesitancy of the vaccine. I think you see these are the kind of barriers we need to address. I think that the point, especially about availability of time, uh, definitely needs more attention to Keisha. Thank you for saying that, because I'm imagining how many employers give their uh, workers paid time off to go get this uh, shot and then have some hours built in to recover from it, as you mentioned. Right, Lucy. And I think when I I just look at some of the um, incentives that the state of Connecticut and other states are looking at incentives too, but particularly here in our state, some of the incentives that we are directing are actually directed towards people getting the shot. I'm interested in knowing what we're doing around incentives to ensure employers are providing opportunity for paid time off or paid childcare or even vaccines on site. So that's important. We're going to be talking about this question of incentives coming up uh, on the show. But in terms of the approach, I should say that back in February, the state partnered with your organization, Health Equity Solutions, to develop a plan to reach over 10,000 people of color over a three-month span to share facts and maybe dispel myths about the COVID-19 vaccine. And so has that work wrapped up? And, And what did you learn while you were doing that? 
So I'm, I'm excited about the fact that we were able to partner with the with the governor's office on this. And we've actually extended that work through the end of August. And so I'm really excited about that. I'm also happy to share that we exceeded our expectations of who we could reach. And we've actually reached over 50,000 people of color, mainly focused on Blacks and Latinx, Black and Latinx populations. And we've had some successful conversion rates of people who were having lack of confidence or um, hesitancy around accessing the vaccine that have turned into people actually getting it. Where we are now um, is this ability, starting to do the ability of breaking down silos. So just like any governmental entity, in fact, many of our own personal sectors that we work in, we have individuals who set a foot on their own projects, their own initiatives, and there too should the cross, there should the two meet. And I'm excited that that really came clear to some people in the governor's office that the Department of Public Health had some initiatives, the governor's office had some initiatives, and it was really important to bring those people together. So now we're actually working with a lot of the local state departments actually of health, as well as the Department of Health, in lining up the mobile vaccine access with our education efforts, partnering with some of the other partners who are statewide partners in doing education and door-to-door work to ensure that we're doing what political campaigns already know is the right way to do it. You make sure that you chase materials and the candidate at the same time. So in this (laughs) instance, we're putting the material and chasing it with the vaccine, meaning bringing the education to the people in their communities, but also making sure that we're doing that ahead of schedule when the vaccine vans will be in the community so that we can actually say, here's the information. Can we answer your question? And by the way, the van will be here next week for you to get in a, to get the vaccine. It's good to hear there's more grassroots work around that. But getting back to the, uh, the point you made earlier about employers, uh, what more could the state of Connecticut do, the governor's office, DPH, to encourage employers to figure out a way to provide this paid time off for their workers? Well, I, I wanted I to share that, you know, as, as part of the work that we do at Health Equity Solutions, we're really trying to make sure that we hear from the people what some of their ideas uh, to address this are. And I, I would be remiss if I did not note that a key group of informants that we have been getting information from come from the Connecticut Health Foundation, who've put together a health equity collaborative of individuals who are in community and are connected to community who are sharing what's happening on the ground there. And this idea of employers giving paid time off, I I don't take ownership from. I think they were the ones who first initially brought this up about the difficulties of people having the ability to get access to the vaccine through their employer. And I think when we look at what some other states are exploring, I don't know that any state has actually done it yet, but maybe they have. There could be, to me, an opportunity to invite to provide tax breaks or um, some sort of tax incentive. I'm not a tax person, so you know maybe that's not a wise idea. But really beginning to have the conversation with employers. I'm an employer, and I would absolutely appreciate, even though my entire staff is vaccinated, I would have appreciated the opportunity to bring. Um, vaccine to my staff instead of having to um, make them make their own appointments and figuring it out. So this is a long answer to say, I would be interested in seeing what the opportunities are that the state could talk to small employers, large employers alike to really bring vaccine to the people and pairing that with incentives around paid time off. 
Uh, earlier, we talked about the Delta variant and how unvaccinated people are at much higher risk of serious disease or death. We're seeing that in parts of our country and also abroad. So when you look at these pockets in our Connecticut communities that are still lagging in the, the vaccine raid, what more could the state do to get information to these high risk communities about this new variant, Takesha? Well, you know, I'm really nervous about the Delta variant, um, and particularly because we know that there are pockets of cases. And what, and I, I want to make sure the listeners understand when we say pockets. Mm-hmm. There are whole zip codes that have very low vaccination penetration that we know where those zip codes are. We just need to make sure that we're deepening our reach into those communities through trusted brokers and through pairing education and availability of the vaccine. That said, I think it's critically important to note that a couple of things are happening all at the same time that we really need to get in front of. We're opening the world up. People are ready to embrace and see people um, and get back to a new normal that looks somewhat like what was here before, but is a different opportunity. But we're also at the height of a new variant coming around and people still not being vaccinated. And as you said in your first segment, individuals being unclear about who can and who can't wear a mask or when you should and when you shouldn't. I think it's really critical, important, critically important that we go back to basics and make sure that we're communicating clearly, effectively, and often the, the barrier, not the barrier, excuse me, the challenges that are facing us with making sure we control this COVID-19 pandemic. The new variants are out here. Uh, The new variants are happening. And we know that not only that we know that vaccinated people have a lesser chance of being sick and having and suffering um, severe outcomes, including death, but the unvaccinated folks who may not have clear, complete information are the ones I'm really, really worried about. So just to reiterate it again, Lucy, I think we need to really get to that kind of back-to-basics grassroots working with the community and ensuring that we are having and lifting up people who are saying, hey, I got vaccinated, here's the information, let's answer your questions, because that's really what it's come down to. When people have their questions answered, the likelihood of them getting the vaccine is highly increased. Well, coming up again, we're going to talk about some of these incentives that uh, the state of Connecticut and the governor's office have been highlighting uh, to try to get the COVID vaccine rates up. But I have to ask, Takesha, you were a member of the Vaccine Allocation Committee. You've been partnering with the state on how to reach uh, these communities about uh, messaging and awareness. These ideas for free concert tickets or free drinks on us. Was that something that was run by you or others who were really working um, long and hard before the vaccine was even available as a way to reach people in our state? I can absolutely say it was not run by me. I can't speak for anybody else who might have been engaged. And I have some strong opinions about incentives, um, and I've not been shy about that when asked. But these particular incentives were not run by me. And so when you say you've got strong opinions, so a free drink and a free concert ticket, I almost feel like that messaging is for people who are already going to get vaccinated. That's right. I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting incentive for people who are already convinced that this is the right thing to do. I don't think that um, any of the, what I think is the campaign called Summer on Us, I don't think any of those, um, and to be clear, I'm not saying that they're, they're terrible. I just don't think that there are incentives that are strong enough to will somebody who is not completely 
there to get there. Um, there are other states who are doing things that I actually still, while I have strong opinions about incentives and don't and, and think that in some communities incentives can be seen as coercion, mm-hmm. I think that there are some ways that incentives can be done that actually seem a little bit more uh, getting at the 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 historic inequities that exist. And so there are some states who are providing free tuition for um, individuals who are going to state college and who get the vaccine, particularly when you pair that with the mandate that you have to be vaccinated to go to college, um, to come back to the campus, I should say. So I think there's just a little bit of an imbalance here of some incentives, I think, are directed more towards those who are already willing to get the vaccine, but maybe haven't just had a moment to get it or need to figure out small access issues. But I I question whether these are strong enough incentives for individuals who just are still trying to figure out, is this the right thing for me to do? How do I find it even if I decide that I want to? And how do I make sure that I have access to childcare and paid time off to actually do it? This goes back to, I think, incentivizing on the employer side, which is something that we're pretty good at doing in this state, we should probably explore. Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett is Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions. Takesha, you gave us a lot to think about. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're going to dig more into incentives uh, after the break and continue to take your questions about the Delta variant and other COVID-related questions you may have. The number again, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. This May marked five years since I began hosting our morning talk show. And I really love talking to people who are doing important work, who are experts in their field. But there are also people who are making an impact in their communities. It has nothing to do with their titles or expertise. And I want to hear about them. People in your town or city that have helped you, whether in this pandemic or long before, people who make your community great, please email me, lucy at ctpublic.org. Tell me about them. And in the months ahead, the person and you nominate may be featured on the show. Now, we've been talking about uh, COVID-related issues related to the Delta variant and also um, the COVID vaccine rate in our state. We had more questions about whether incentives like the state of Connecticut coming up with to encourage residents to get the vaccine, like a free drink or a potential to win free concert tickets, is this really effective? On Zoom with us now is Dr. John Brownstein, epidemiologist and chief innovation officer at Boston Children's Hospital, and he's a professor at Harvard Medical School. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much. Before we get into the incentives, you help run the vaccines.gov webpage for the Biden administration. Can you tell us just briefly about this resource where people can learn about not only vaccines, but incentives? Sure. Yeah. Um, So in fact, we have been running Vaccine Finder uh, for the country since the H1N1 pandemic, where it was recognized that people just didn't know where to get the flu shot to to, uh, prevent uh, H1N1 infection. And so from there, uh, we got tapped by CDC, Operation Warp Speed, and the White House to essentially repurpose our effort to vaccines.gov. And essentially, we collect all the information about every location across the country that has 
that one of the three vaccines and we have that data in real time. We make that data public. People can go on the site at vaccines.gov, put in their zip code, figure out which vaccine they want and uh, make an appointment. And so we've been doing this for, for months. It's been the sort of main tool that the Biden administration has been pushing. We've done amazing amount of partnerships with companies like Google and Apple and Facebook, but also more uh, odd ones like Bumble and Tinder and all sorts of dating apps. So basically throwing every possible collaboration out there to get the word out about uh, the vaccines and to really drive uptake in communities. So let's get into the fun incentives that Connecticut's come up with, like a free drink on us or a free concert ticket, the potential to get one. How typical is what Connecticut doing related to other states? And I know you and your colleagues have looked into the factors that actually motivate people to go and get this vaccine. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, it's it's there's pretty it's pretty common across the country. We're seeing states have all sorts of sort of unique incentives to their populations, whether it's free beer or baseball tickets. There's national incentive programs, obviously, that we've seen. Um, and you know, I think what we heard in the last segment from Takesha, which was very you know thoughtful, is that you know if you were already sort of on your way to getting the vaccine, this might have been a little bit of a jump start to going to get it, and that was especially helpful. You know, maybe a couple months ago. But now we're sort of into the to the real sort of ground game where people are, you know, on the fence, potentially waiting for authorization, not quite convinced of the data. But in our view, actually, a lot of what we're focused on is access and vaccine deserts. And we know that there are tens of millions of people that we classify in this country as living in vaccine deserts, meaning that they don't have quick and easy access to the vaccine and, you know, it seems surprising for many people, especially those who are in urban areas, recognize you can't, you know, walk a block without seeing a location offering the COVID vaccine. While you know, 30 million people live in a non-sort of easy access uh, location for the vaccine, and and so that becomes an issue. And when you have a long drive time, plus maybe some hesitation around whether you want the vaccine, that's going to lead to to, to sort of this issue of the, the slowdown in the vaccination pace and, and sort of no sort of uh, fun incentive is gonna change that decision process, unfortunately. So when we look at the at Connecticut, about 33% still not vaccinated. Is this, I mean, it's better than some states, especially in the deep South, but when we think about the challenges ahead for the state, how to get that remaining third vaccinated, uh, what are some approaches uh, based on some of the, the research that you and your colleagues have done? Yeah, I mean, there's good examples even of vaccine deserts here in Connecticut, uh, in Wyndham County, for instance, you know, you have to drive over 15 minutes to get to a COVID vaccination site. That might not seem like a lot, but when you have to take time off work, you're worried about side effects, you're not convinced that necessarily the vaccine is needed, that drive time is significant. And we actually know that there's about 10 to 15,000 people in Wyndham County that are not vaccinated, but would like to be. And this is because potentially they can't get that time off work or they can't afford to miss a day because of illness. So what do you do in that situation? Well, you think about how to add vaccination sites uh, in sort of those deserts. Uh, we know that there are a number of family medicine practices that potentially could provide vaccines in those deserts for vulnerable populations that would ease the burden, you know, that would reduce the friction to getting the shot. Those are the kind of, so innovative ways of sort of rethinking our sort of site locations, I think is a simple way to really start to get those people who really need the vaccine uh, immunized. 
Again, with us is John Brownstein, epidemiologist and chief innovation officer at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, we have a question from Sharon in New Haven. Sharon, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, my question is about um, the Delta variant and children, specifically uh, children under 12 who are unvaccinated. Um, we've heard or I've heard, I've read that the um, Delta variant is more contagious and also that when uh, the, when adults are infected with it, they tend to have more severe illness. Um, Kurt, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I'm wondering, in children under 12, those who cannot have yet been able to get vaccinated, um, is this the same? Or is it more contagious than them? Um, are they getting sicker? Are they being hospitalized more? What are the differences in children? That's a great question. Um, and I appreciate you asking that because there is a lot of confusion around the Delta variant. I think it's pretty well understood now that the Delta variant is far more transmissible than prior variants. Um, and that has been clearly shown. I think this issue of severity is one that is still up for debate. I, I recognize that the, the White House has put out messaging that it's more deadly. I think the science is still a little bit murky on that particular topic. We always have to remember that if you have a surge in cases, um, that is going to complicate health systems that will lead to hospitalizations and deaths that could be unnecessary because, you know, hospi hospitals over capacity. So we always have to be careful with the data and how we interpret it. That being said, a more transmissible uh, virus that leads to more cases. Ultimately, you're going to see, you know, a, a proportionally more severe cases, regardless if it's a more severe variant. And that same is true for kids, right? There's no data suggests that it's more severe in kids right now. The data that we're seeing in, in ICUs uh, across the country doesn't show that we're seeing a major increase. Yes, we're seeing sort of overall more hospitalizations among younger adults just because the, those are the unvaccinated populations. And yes, of course, under 15, uh, uh, under 12 as well. Uh, but generally speaking, I don't think it, it sort of represents a more severe virus, but I think it tells us, and I think we were talking about this in prior segments, that the need to be thoughtful around our kids and, and the ones that are not capable of getting vaccinated now because of their age, this puts more pressure on them to mask, but also their parents and those around them to be thoughtful about masking and social distancing, especially in light of cases surging, especially in, in different parts of this country. John, since you brought up uh, the young people, I'm just thinking about if we could talk about the the 20-somethings, as well as there's this phenomenon happening where we're hearing that kids uh, 12 to 18, maybe their parents are hesitant about this vaccine, but they're, they're going around and, and trying to still get it. Can you talk about that? What's your reaction? Yeah, it's really interesting. And this lines up with the survey data. We, we run a, um, a weekly survey with uh, SurveyMonkey where, they, where we get um, participants to, to, to fill out optional surveys. And what's quite interesting is what we see is um, vaccine confidence reduces as you go younger in age, which makes sense because it's the group that feels invincible. They don't think COVID is you know, that significant. But what's interesting is you get even younger into the sort of the 15 to 18 year old group confidence starts to go up again. And, you know, maybe it's because, you know, that group recognizes that, you know, the challenges of the past year and, and recognizes how hard it's been in social distancing and, and lack of schooling. But there's a lot of actually enthusiasm around the, the vaccine in younger kids. It's their parents that are, are less convinced. And so you have this interesting dynamic because of consent where there are kids that are looking to get immunized where their parents do not want it. And then you have, you know, interesting case studies of, of kids sort of trying to go around their parents to get vaccinated. And depending on the state, 
you know, the age of consent varies. And so uh, we're seeing interesting trends in, in those age groups. And that will, you know, be even further interesting when you have the dynamic of kids under 12 who will likely be approved for the vaccine this coming fall, uh, where the parents will still not be convinced, but their pediatricians will try to, to make the case that, you know, immunizing our younger age groups are super important for them, but also the, the pandemic at large. And so a lot of interesting questions are going to come up about how, you know, how that group uh, does with the vaccine rollout. Just a couple minutes left. I, I got to ask you this. I know it's more controversial. Of course, we know the government has focused on getting people to accept this vaccine voluntarily. Will there come a time where there should be a national vaccine mandate? It's something that our country has done before, I think, for smallpox. I think we're not quite there yet. I think that, yes, you know, that's a, a conversation that comes up. But I, I think that unlikely we're going to see that. You know, I, my belief is that COVID will become the seasonal illness like flu. So it, the vaccination sort of strategy will, will likely mimic flu. We'll, we'll have a big push. We still don't know, you know, if it's a yearly or every couple of years vaccination strategy for COVID or, or maybe never. But I think likely that will be the, the, the effort. You know, how do we get people on board with the vaccine? Then you'll have certain places that will mandate, you know, the vaccine. You know, I, I'm in a, in a healthcare institution that mandates a flu shot every year. I think likely we'll see that for, for COVID. But I, I doubt that we'll be in a situation where, uh, you know, we'll be forcing people to, to get immunized with COVID, um, you know, over time. But, you know, again, you know, things have surprised me with this pandemic. So I guess we'll find out uh, soon enough. So when we think about private employers, small business owners, uh, Mike called in late. He owns a B&B. He's immunocompromised. He thinks most guests are vaxxed, not all. Uh, he's got a question. Should he require guests to be vaccinated? It's really up to him, John. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question. It, it, it's really it's up to you and, and what your sort of your, your decision process from a, a personal safety perspective to, to yourself, to your clients um, and a business perspective. I think that, of course, over time, the likelihood of your clients being vaccinated is very high, but you will have, you know, a small number of people that will have opted out. You can sort of advocate for, for those people to wear masks and practice social distancing. I think that's probably what we're seeing most uh, across you know, businesses right now because it's just so hard to mandate uh, vaccination. I know that there are many companies that are working on vaccine verification cards and you know, in certain circumstances, those are valuable, maybe cruise ships or concerts. I have a hard time believing sort of in hospitality, like hotels, those will be required. Um, and those will just be you know, highly dependent on the, on, the, on the decisions of the business owners themselves. Dr. John Brownstein, epidemiologist and chief innovation officer at Boston Children's Hospital. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>